Good morning. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to welcome you here this morning to the Institute to discuss how to be a minister, part of our long-running series, how to take infrastructure decisions within that. Uh, we're delighted to be doing uh, this particular event with APM, the Association of Project Management, and Tim Banfield, who has held many relevant things, as well as working for APM now, about, but has worked in the, in the Cabinet Office and the National Audit Office, is going to say a few words as well uh, about their particular interest in this. this. This event, and ones like it, come out of our long series of reports last year on infrastructure, uh, headed by Nick Davies, just walking into the room, and team, and those set out to address this question of how ministers could make good infrastructure decisions and how officials could help them in that, um, and yet um, get the projects over the line, if you like, get them actually to happen, and yet not saddle the country with things that in retrospect or even at the time looked eye-wateringly expensive. I'm not going to mention any particular nuclear power station, high-speed <laughs> rail or airport, but... Um, oh, fine. <laughs> And, you know, we all know the, 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 the challenge seems at times almost to be, uh, you know, a buzz of consensus around the idea that the, the, the country needs lots of infrastructure, but not about where, not about how to get political support for that, to get public support for that, absolutely not about uh, how to pay for it, um, and indeed not always about what it, what it should cost. So we're going, we're going to dig into that. Um, we're also drawing in this on our Ministers Reflect series um, where uh, many ministers have, uh, have talked to us about this. And even though infrastructure is not a word, and no, no minister says I'm an infrastructure minister, and it's not a word that the public uses, they say roads and rail and hospitals and so on, um, by our reckoning there are 26 different ministers in eight departments who have some responsibility for what, in the jargon, you might call infrastructure. So I'm delighted to have here to discuss this uh, uh, Sir Patrick uh, McLaughlin who was a former Secretary of State for Transport for four years, quite a long spell. Uh, that was from 2012 to uh, 2016. Uh, has also been an MP since 1986 and uh, done many things, including being Chief Whip. And Patricia Hewitt um, also uh, held uh, for what is, in ministerial terms, quite a long spell, four years as, as Secretary of State for Trade and Industry from 2001 to 2005. Uh, was MP for Leicester West from 1997 to 2010, and also Economic Secretary to the Treasury Minister for Small Business and, and Health Secretary, uh, all uh, relevant in their, their way. They're going to speak for a few minutes first, but first let me hand over to Tim, who's just going to say a few words from his perspective and from APM. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you, Roman, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, the APM's delighted to be able to sponsor um, this event this morning as the... Um, newly established charter body for the profession. We've got a, a lot of members in central government doing some of the biggest, most difficult jobs that you can imagine trying to deliver major projects. So anything that we can do that can help get the dialogue better um, and to improve that delivery track record by working with the Institute for Government, we're really pleased to do. Now, having a charter profession is really important for us um, to help build visibility and credibility and help get everybody to understand that project management is about delivering change to society and to the economy. It's about more than just building things, which is the focus of our efforts this morning. 
Our register of project professionals um, opens next month, uh, and we're hoping that we're going to have a lot of our civil service uh, colleagues and friends among the first people to come into that. Um, that's probably enough of the plug, uh, and I don't want to hold you back from the, uh, the, the main part of the conversation. But I'll just offer three brief thoughts from the things that we at APM have been seeing um, about the way that infrastructure is being delivered. First one is that, that uh, uh, the government of the day always brings a ferment of ideas um, and an ambition to deliver on those quickly. And we expect ministers to arrive um, and pick up their briefs very quickly, um, very often move on um, and have to transfer that knowledge very quickly. So three thoughts around what some of that might mean. First of all, the establishment of the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, the creation of the NIC, in theory, gives us a really sound base to move forward from. On the one hand, we're developing uh, a more efficient and consistent central government project management capability, um, and I was very proud in the Cabinet Office to be part of creating that profession. Secondly, it should be enabling us to make better plans and better prioritise the infrastructure projects we do. The third part of that process is politics. After all, the IPA and the NIC both exist to help deliver on government policy intent. So we have to bring all three of those together. And sometimes there still seems like there's a disjoint. So the conversation this morning that we're having, if we can start to identify and think about different ways of tackling some of that disjoint, I think gives us something really good to build from. Second point, um, and Sir Patrick refers to this in his uh, Minister's Reflect piece and, and uh, quoted Cecil Parkinson about the only trouble with this job is you start a project off, then you're gone and it's finished when you're away from it. And longevity is really important with this. Now in government we've made um, a very big effort to try and keep senior responsible owners and project directors in post longer and we've nearly doubled the average tenure um, from that. Um, but there's probably more to do there. What that does is it gives us the start of a building block. Ministers are bound to move on. Um, I mean, that's the reality. Um, and one of the things that I think it would be really good for us to explore today is how we make sure that we get ministerial continuity and knowledge and the senior responsible owner and senior civil servant um, capability to align rather more closely so we keep the knowledge better within the system and we keep the accountability better. One final plea, um, we're focusing on ministerial knowledge about infrastructure this morning, but when you look at most of the big projects government does, they're about transformation. And actually most of the infrastructure projects that we produce are to start to transform people's lives and transform society in one way or another. So our biggest plea to have uh, for this is that we don't just think about this as infrastructure, we think about it as transformation and the outcomes that we're trying to change. And I think that then puts an even bigger onus on making sure that we can support ministers well. I won't say any more, I'll hand it back. Thank you. Tim, thank you very much indeed. Patrick, you want to pick up from there, Tim's taken us right to the, the politics at the heart of this. Right, okay, well, first and foremost, I'd like to, I'd like to think that the attitude to <clears throat> infrastructure and big projects is actually changing in this country. I actually think we've, uh, we've got some projects that we can rightly point to and say, gosh, how successful and how great they've been. So if I think first of London 2012, when there was certainly a very definite deadline 
as to what had to be achieved uh, and um, what was done. And that was Britain delivering infrastructure. Uh, and once the proper budget had been set, I think there was an unrealistic budget set uh, at first, but once a proper budget had been set, it was delivered, and it was delivered on time. And as a country, we felt proud of what we'd done in the world. And I think that was an amazing uh, sort of project. Uh, likewise, I think we're going to see that later this year with the opening of Crossrail. Uh, Crossrail, I remember Crossrail being announced by Cecil Parkinson when I was a junior minister in the Department of Transport in 1990. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the tale of uh, the problems that we had as a country in doing such a development like that, uh, you know, books have been and will be written on it. I also think as we look around the country now, we see other great projects which we stand back in awe and say, gosh, yes, we can deliver big infrastructure projects and change. And I think of Birmingham New Street Station. Um, you know, chaos while it was going on, inconvenience while it was going on. London Bridge Station, absolute four years of terrible problems for the people using that particular station. But today, we look back and say it was worth the disruption. And if I uh, think of a station that I know both Patricia and I have used regularly, uh, King's Cross St Pancras. When I first became a Member of Parliament, you wouldn't want to spend five minutes at St Pancras station. You really wouldn't. Most people wouldn't want to spend any time at King's Cross. There were a few exceptions. But... Um, <laughs> It always gets a laugh that even in the morning, which isn't bad. Um, but today, those places are destinations in their own right. And it's infrastructure. It's capital investment in infrastructure. And one of the things I felt when I got to the Department of Transport, because I sort of arrived at the Department of Transport not really knowing too much about HS2, uh, not at, uh, knowing that it was fairly controversial. It was controversial with a number of members of Parliament whose seat it directly went through. And I think we've got to accept that when you get very big infrastructure projects which go through people's areas that they love and they know, it is going to be controversial. But what is quite important is first and foremost you sell the message right about what it's all about. And perhaps on HS2 we didn't, because everybody thought it was about speed. Actually, it wasn't about speed. It was about capacity. It was about upgrading the railways of this country. When the first railway was being uh, promoted between London and Birmingham, it was defeated in the House of Commons because the canals were perfectly adequate. So some things don't change uh, as far as getting that message across. And I think, so one of the things that I think is very, very important is to try and get on big infrastructure projects cross-party consensus as to why you're doing it. And there was a problem, there was a time with HS2 when things were, were looking a bit, uh, a bit shaky. It was possible that the, uh, the, the Shadow Chancellor in particular was, was, very, was seen as quite a critic of it. And it was at that stage that the 10 city leaders that HS2 mostly affected, which were Labour leaders, actually came and delivered a letter to the then Prime Minister and said, this project is essential for our city. It's essential for Birmingham. It's essential for Manchester. It's essential for Newcastle. It's essential 
for Leeds. And, and, and we did then start to restell the story about capacity, about rebalancing, about getting the, the kind of transport infrastructure, yes, that is partially in existence. I always, one of the things I reflect on and found quite, quite amusing was that it was a, a number of uh, skept, uh, Eurosceptics, as I would call them at that particular stage, that were very much opposed to this high speed too, and thinking how funny it was that we got a high speed train to Paris and Brussels, but we hadn't got one to Birmingham or to Leeds or to Manchester in our own country. So actually trying to get some of those arguments across, getting some of that, those issues across. Building building a consensus. When you look at the Davis Commission report as far as airport capacity in the southeast, nobody doubts for any second that it is a very, very controversial subject which affects thousands upon thousands of people directly if we get it wrong. But actually getting it right and building uh, because it's not going to be something that's going to be done in any one parliament, it's going to be done over parliaments. I think one of the things that the National Commission uh, for Infrastructure needs to do is to get that overwhelming broad census, uh, consensus and to have done the work to show why that is the right, the, the right answer and the best answer as far as the country is, is concerned. So one of the things we did when I arrived at the Department of Transport, because there had never been a vote on HS2 uh, before um, I got there, was to take something called a paving bill through. A paving bill was a very, sh it was a very short bill, so only two, two or three clauses, which basically gave the intention to build a high-speed railway from London to Birmingham. Once we got that as an act, that actually led us through a number of areas, particularly as far as the Treasury were concerned and the National Audit Office, because Parliament had actually done a decision about building uh, the, uh, the railway. Then the, the actual bill itself, which was one of the largest pieces of uh, sort of uh, written evidence ever to go through the House of Commons and uh, bills to go through the House of Commons, was more of a straightforward matter because we'd actually voted on the principle and got a very overwhelming uh, majority. But I don't think the, the thing that we, we were right not to do was to dismiss those people who were opposed to it because we just got to accept and we just got to make the case that this is actually in the national interest. So those are the things I think I would talk about. Uh, the, the, the biggest parts of what is absolutely necessary is to try and build consensus. These things aren't done in single parliaments. Uh, and to take them forward, not dismissing the opposition you're going to get, but trying to work with, saying to that opposition, you will work with them to try and alleviate uh, some of the issues and some of the problems which they get. Patrick, thank, thanks very much. I've got quite a few questions I, I'm going to come back to on that. But Patricia, let me, let, let me turn to you. Uh, you. What are your thoughts? You had obviously many yes. different takes on this from the uh, Department for Trade and Industry, as, as was Health, uh, the Treasury itself. Um, what do you see as the... Bronwyn, thank you, and it's uh, a great pleasure to be here. Completely agree, Patrick, with the various points you've just made. And I think I would just add, in, because what you said about being really clear about the story you are telling, you know, every minister on anything significant needs to be able to say, we are doing this because, and you then need to complete one sentence, and that's the one sentence that forms the heart of every interview, every parliamentary statement, everything you say about the project. 
Well, no, you gave some great examples, including the King's Cross one, but don't forget the importance of small infrastructure. I live part of the time now in Norfolk. I do a lot of work on health and care in Norfolk. The dual carriaging of the A11 has been transformational. Massive inconvenience for years, transformational. But I just want to add to what Patrick said, really drawing on Department of Health experience, um, because I have three different kinds of infrastructure responsibilities as health secretary. One was um, picking up on the NHS IT program, not the disaster that um, the computing press would have you believe, or complete disaster, but certainly not an unqualified success. PFI hospital, hospital uh, building program, and the primary care building program, much smaller scale, but another private-public partnership called LIFT, the LIFT program. And so there are three things I would just underline from that. First of all, you really need a strong expert client side. Your emphasis on developing a proper professional cadre of project managers, spot on. And the truth is, the client side on the NHS IT, despite the fact that... I mean, you mean the companies? No, 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 no. I mean the Department of Health, as was NHS England now. I mean, us in government and the officials supporting us who were buying that program, if you like, designing it and buying it from private sector partners... Now, Tony Blair realised we needed more expertise than the department had to do it, so we brought in, at considerable and controversial expense, private sector expertise to sit in the department and commission that programme. But partly, I think, because of Treasury pressures on cost, we cut corners in ways that were shockingly unhelpful. So buying software, for instance, that was you know, designed to last for over a decade, but by basically freezing the software version at the time we bought it, so that the company, which was constantly updating the software for all its other international clients for that software, was expected to go on supporting an out-of-date version of the software for the NHS. Balmy. Um, I won't go into all those stories, but a very expert client side, same problem on hospital building with the PFI. And what was happening, and I guess this was partly a a consequence of it being a public-private partnership, of which, of course, there was very strong cross-party consensus, but you found that hospital leaders around the country, both at board level and senior executive level, were regarding it really as a free lunch. And so they would say, oh, we're going to have this wonderful new hospital. (coughs) Right. Now, what proportion of the rooms shall we make single occupancy? They'd say, oh, goody, well, let's have, you know, 10%. Oh, that's not enough. Let's make it 20, you know. And then well into the programme, the design, maybe even the start of the build, they'd say, oh, we didn't think of this. Let's add something else. That bedeviled IT programmes as well. Constantly changing the specification and having no understanding of 
the cost consequences of that. And that is a massive problem. And although many ministers, I'm a bit nerdy, as you can tell, but a lot of ministers would regard that kind of detail as simply none of their business, you know. They're for the big picture, the political strategy, the stakeholder management, you know, all of that. Actually, as a minister, either you as the Secretary of State or a really good junior minister you can trust has got to be into the detail because otherwise something's going to go wrong. So I think that very strong client side led by a minister. The second point, which I almost hesitate to mention because it's so blindingly obvious, think about the revenue and not just the capital. And this is a variation, if you like, of the hospital story. But even today, I am seeing beautiful primary care buildings, part of the LIFT program. You can tell they were part of the LIFT program. Beautifully designed, built to last, you know, really thoughtful, good uh, construction. And quite a lot of that beautiful space is empty. And I'm sure the Treasury has learnt this lesson, but it was something I was very critical of when Gordon Brown was Chancellor. There would be big announcements of capital spending. Great headlines, made the spending figures look good, you know, Labour spending so much more, and, and, and. And we would build stuff in health, in education, whatever. But there wasn't the revenue to actually finance the activity in the building. And so all around the country, there are buildings which are not being properly used. And of course, that's a particular problem in the NHS at the moment. Um, But it's a deeper problem that, for instance, within the NHS, there is not a good understanding of costs. And I remember when we were doing the hospital building program, being lectured by a private sector businessman who, amongst other things, ran chains of hotels. And he said, we have it down to the last pound. We know for this kind of hotel, we can charge however much, 60 pounds a night, say, in those days. We know if we're charging 60 pounds a night and we're averaging 80% occupancy, then the capital cost of the building and the size of the rooms will be such and such. That's the formula. And all the hotels we build are built the same formula. So we don't waste time redesigning the hotel you know, every time we build a new one. On hospitals, there was no real equation between if you have 10%, let us say, single rooms, then that is going to equate to the following cost base for the continued occupation and staffing of those rooms. And if you double the proportion of private rooms, well, you know, that's going to double the cost base for those rooms. So that kind of commercial acumen, which you would take for granted in the private sector, is quite lacking in a lot of the public sector. And it's one of the reasons why we end up, as we have done in the NHS, with some hospitals that actually we can't afford. They are taking too much of a now very squeezed revenue base. So it's a real problem. 
And the third thing I would say, which applies much more generally to how to be a minister, I think, is make sure you've got, as a minister, multiple sources of intelligence about what is going on. Talk to MPs of all parties. I used to run surgeries for members of parliament to talk about health, and they would come and have a whinge to me about what was going on in their constituency and what was going wrong, and it was invaluable, because I could come back, say to officials, find out about this, because they probably hadn't heard about it, and depending on what the problem was, I could find a way to sort it out, generally with the help of the local members of parliament. You need your officials feeling comfortable enough with you as a minister to be able to bring you bad news. Some of the big disasters in government happen because officials are too terrified to say something is going wrong. And find ways, whether it's through email, phone calls, getting around the country, all of the above, find ways of making sure that people working on the front line of the NHS, when I was health secretary, on the front line of these projects, including in your private sector partners, they can tell you, or your special advisor, or somebody close to you, what is really going on. So don't only be dependent on your officials, however good they are, for the information that you're getting. So those Thank are my Thank you very, very lessons. much for that. Um, there are really three things I, I, I want to ask uh, the two of you before we go to questions, and you've, you've, um, you've taken us very nicely to the third one of those. Um, but let me start right at the, be the beginning, um, where Patrick sort of brought us in, and you're trying to make a case for the national interest, if you like. And you know, an awful lot of infrastructure, uh, maybe not all, not hospitals uh, and schools, but an awful lot of it, people locally perhaps don't want it. Yeah. They don't want power stations, they may not want roads. Um, how do you go about making that case that it's in the national, even the regional mm. interest um, to people who say, yes, but not here? I, I, well, I think if I can deal with transport, I won't try and deal with health. I'll you have know, Patricia to, uh, to deal with. But I think with dealing with transport, you will quite often get people saying that they want better, more effective and more efficient services. So, you know, as far as HS2 is concerned, what we had to point out was that the West Coast Main Line was the busiest railway line anywhere in Europe. Mm. Uh, and there was just not the capacity uh, to do that. Now we have a choice. We could either build a new railway line, conventional railway line, or you could build a high-speed railway line. The truth is a high-speed railway line is about 10% more expensive than a conventional railway line. So there wasn't a lot of extra cost. Uh, and when you, I, I suppose one of the problems is, I don't think, I'm not sure that there's many projects which have had so many parliamentary reports in it as uh, HS2 has um, at, at this early stage. But, you know, the, the Treasury had a sort of uh, the green book rules, which mm -hmm. said you've got to base everything on 30 years. Uh, and it's got to sort of show its return over 30 years. Well, if it takes you yeah. 20 years to build it, uh, that 30 years is a very, you know, you've only got 10 years left to, to see that growth. So there has to be a sort of a, a relaxation as, yeah. as to part of those particular rules are concerned. And it was blindingly obvious, you know. I mean, if you talk to the city leaders, uh, I remember my first meeting with Ken Lees, who was the... Uh, leader of uh, Manchester City Council, and I've been man leader of Manchester City Council for 18 years, and he greeted me by saying, ah, you're the 13th Transport Secretary. 
And I said, I suppose you're looking forward to the 14th. He said, not until 2015. Uh, so I was able to send him a very nice note after 2014. Sorry to dis- for 2015. Sorry to disappoint. But, uh, you know, he, 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 and he was, uh, he was absolutely uh, convinced that what yeah. was necessary was this better connectivity between our main cities. And you've only got to, you know, I'm sorry to do the King's Cross and St Pancras again, but you've only got to look around there to see the change in that area over the past 20 years. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Oh, right, and that's one of the things that famously, I mean, cost-benefit analysis finds very hard to measure is what, what you know, what the surrounding benefits yes. and everything would be. But you tucked into that something slightly slippery, if sorry, I might say. Yeah, yeah I, I, which is saying, oh, we've got to relax those rules. Yes. You were talking at the time about yeah. the Treasury Green Book. I mean, isn't that rather... Um, uh, dangerous territory to say, look, let's, uh, the politics are so difficult, but let's just ease up on the economics, uh, economic justification of these things. Well, I think there has to be an economic justification, but Patrick absolutely alluded to that. If it's going to take you 20 years to build, then having another 10 years to show the economic return doesn't make sense. You might say it's 30 years from its opening. You know, yes. that could make more mm. sense. Yeah. But you certainly do. I mean, I'm now on the board of Eurotunnel, which is the only major piece of infrastructure, um, I think, in Europe that has been entirely privately financed. And, of course, a disaster for the first round of investors, but very successful commercially and financially now, as well as in transport terms and keeping us connected to the continent. But, you know, that was funded... That was financed and built on the basis of a, God, I ought to have this 50-year, I think, concession. It's very long. And when Boris Johnson cheerfully said the other day, well, of course we should have a a bridge, we were able to write to him and say, absolutely, we'd love to come and talk to you about this because it is part of Eurotunnel's concession that should there be a second fixed link, Eurotunnel has first option on building it. So, I don't suppose he knew that. <laughs> I think not. <laughs> I, I want to come on to some of the points about, um, about that, that Patricia was raising about whether government and the public sector are good at making these decisions. I mean, we've had a lot of um, tales, if, if, if you like, of reports of people saying, "Look, um, sometimes the money doesn't always seem real uh, compared to the." very real effort of yeah. trying to get the project done or the real uh, threat as some uh, officials feel it of judicial review even though the government tends to win Indeed. quite a bit of judicial review mm-hmm. and somehow the money is as is, is, is you're describing and the money that the taxpayer the consumer will end up paying in the end uh, doesn't feel as as real Patricia I mean what you were describing um, was um, public sector at the point that you, 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 you were telling us about less sure-footed than parts of the private sector mm. and doing some of these things. Do mm. you think that, how widespread is that and do you think that that has changed? Well, it, it used to be a very widespread problem in government. I mean, when, when I was in government, when New Labour was in government, we were desperately short, I would say, of project managers. I remember we had a brilliant young project manager in, in Department of Trade and Industry and the minute the special advisor from number 10 spotted him, he was off. You know, he'd been whisked away to number 10. and I'd lost him for whatever it was we were doing at the time. Um, so I think that is probably improved, is clearly improving. Um, 
the management of large-scale IT projects, you know, was notoriously poor. Now, there are problems with large-scale IT projects in the private sector as well. This is not unique to government, and they're not all bad in government. But that, so that may partly reflect a shortage of these capabilities across the whole economy. Um, I, I'm not in a great position to judge how much it's improved, but looking at significant parts of the NHS today where we are woefully behind where we need to be on digital capabilities. You know, when you look around the world, you look at India, which I know well, the digital transformation of healthcare is extraordinary and very exciting. And there's some pockets of excellence within the NHS, but overall, we are not where we need to be. And that partly reflects just a lack of enough capability. Mm. There are people right at the top mm. of, the NH of NHS England who completely get it, but translating that into action on the ground, it's quite, quite slow. Mm. I, th I think I, I completely agree with Patricia about that. And it is bringing, actually being able to employ the right kind of people for those jobs at the kind of pay that you would have to compete mm. with to a degree with the private sector mm. and I, 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 it's quite difficult to sort of be a bit over Pacific because it's mentioning individuals but I was talking about somebody who was about to appoint to one of these uh, key positions uh, I was talking uh, to uh, some people in the private sector and I was mentioning the, the difficulty we were having with pay and he said that person could pick that up tomorrow and double what you're mm. offering to pay um, because he is just so well recognised and rated uh, in the world, not mm. just in the United Kingdom. Mm. And sometimes for these positions, it isn't competition that we're just looking at within the United Kingdom. It's, it's world competition uh, mm. because uh, mm. those, uh, those, those people with those kind of skills will be attracted elsewhere and will be paid elsewhere. Mm. Um, so, but but uh, you know, I, I think we should, particularly on the physical side of infrastructure, you know, we should look at some of the projects, as I alluded to earlier on, which we can be rightly proud of, where we have delivered on time mm, and to absolutely. budget, which have been very, very encouraging indeed. Yeah. I would just say from the Institute's point of view, we, we've done quite a bit of work on outsourcing, um, generally of which projects, um, mm. as opposed to services, you know, is, is, is a chunk. And our view, very broadly, is that the government has got better at writing these, these contracts and got more sophisticated at doing these commercial deals. Um, that hasn't entirely extended to the management of ongoing contracts, as we saw with uh, Carillion yeah. and, and, uh, yeah. and so on. But there has, there has been an improvement and a growth in what you might call worldliness. Um, mm. But um, not always, as I, sense, uh, as I said, with that sense that the money and what that's going to mean to what the public pays in the end, mm. that, that not always being, just, just feeling real in some sense. Let me ask you a final point. Um, uh, Patrick, and you, you've dealt on it a bit, which is, uh, you know, the regions. Um, and whether you think there is more support for infrastructure building in the regions, and just what that political debate feels like now. We're still a very centralised country, but there is much more um, support for the city deals, uh, for linking together parts of the country, as you're saying. You know, we, where are we in this? Well, I think we're making progress. I think things like the Midland Gen Engine, the Northern Powerhouse, also the, south, what, what the, the coming together of the local authorities in the southwest as far as uh, infrastructure spending there is, is, is in, encouraging. 
still a lot more to do. I think the whole push of city mayors, the Andy Burnham in Manchester, Andy Street in the West Midlands, not just looking at the West Midlands, just in West Midlands terms, because actually you've got to look at the Midlands. Mm -hmm. You've got to look at, uh, you know, the, the sort of, just from the edge of my constituency, but a mile from where I live, the A38, three roundabouts that hold the traffic up, that get snarled up all the time. That is going to be an express uh, way. That's going to cost uh, £200 million. So I think those, yeah. uh, as Patricia was saying earlier on, some of the smaller, and, and when we're, £200 million is not small, but sort of smaller pieces of infrastructure, bidding into the process. One of the, one of the things I did as Transport Secretary, I was, I was always impressed by what Michael Hesseltine did as far as City Challenge was concerned, and I was a junior minister with Michael Hesseltine, and I tried to recreate the same sort of thing uh, in transport, where we had a, uh, a, a pinch point fund of 100 and 200 million pounds. And this had to be projects which would either create more employment or do housing development. But there had to be private sector involvement as well, and they had to partly fund. And so the department do these schemes, they had to be under 10 million pounds, and part of it had to be done by the private sector. I learned that that 200 million actually turned into half a billion investment. And I remember speaking to one of the sort of uh, leaders of um, infrastructure, uh, one of the infrastructure uh, groups, engineering groups, and saying, well, I don't suppose 170 million pounds means that much to you. He said, no, on the contrary. They've been very, very useful fillers mm. in between jobs. Mm. Uh, and actually, they were, they were a very important sort of uh, scheme. So something like that, yeah. which, mm. which is yes. small in, in yes. scale and may only be doing a couple of roundabouts or opening up uh, something like that will be very important uh, longer mm. term. So I thought that was a very useful yeah. mm. sort of uh, uh, physical infrastructure as opposed to the, mm. uh, the the kind that Patricia's talked about. Quick word on that, and then we're going to go no, with I questions. Strongly agree with that. Yeah. Great. Let's have some questions. Right. First one. Well done. Uh, okay. Can you wait for the microphone there, please? Hi, uh, Simon Jeffrey from Centre Cities. It's really interesting that you touched on the uh, regional issue at the end there. I think. When it comes to making decisions on infrastructure, you've talked, I think, that those sorts of schemes of co-bidding, trying to get the private sector involved, is, is one way of trying to make sure that, that the right bids and extra money is leveraged in. But there seems to be a, an issue that one way of making sure that the right decisions are made and that local areas put the right bids forward is that, you know, the incentives are aligned for them to do so, that, you know, whether it's looking at the business case or the economic case, if there was a way for them to fund it themselves for, you know, the returns on that investment to actually be internal as a way to you know, sharpen the mind on what is the benefit going to be, really thinking about if this is our money that mm. we're spending on something, mm. that has a really amazing way of making sure people <laughs> think about it's the right thing to do rather than however well you design certain pots, there's always uh, rules of a game and however you bid in is, well, do we think this is going to get done? Is this the right scheme? Are we rebadging something? So having a sort of certain element of devolution of funding and letting there be no strings attached on that and catching some of the income on that side or you know devolution of uh, fiscal mechanisms I think might be a, a, a significant way of improving the quality of decisions on infrastructure and and potentially on the project management of, of it himself. Interesting point you mean devolution like re regionally as opposed to giving it to the private sector? Uh, yes yeah. so yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Do you want to it's an interesting thought and I mean this this could include presumably local authorities actually raising local bonds for particular projects and taking the responsibility. 
Um, look, I think it's, it's exactly the kind of thing the Institute for Government could, could usefully look at. I'm not sure if you take a long view back over local government. I mean, you know, there are some great examples of local councils really thinking very astutely about how they are going to maximise the benefit to local people and others, you know, where there have been some pretty shocking vanity projects that, you know, haven't been a good use of money. And that's, you know, true even when the responsibility has been very clear. Yeah. Thanks. I, I, I'll t- I can take a hint. I'm um, uh, <laughs> keen for us to continue looking quite a lot at the finance. There's one over here. Uh, thank you. David Leem, London First. Uh, Patrick, I've got to ask you, as a former Transport Secretary and former Chief Whip, are we finally going to get a positive vote on the uh, airport's national policy statement when it's laid before <laughs> Parliament in the next couple of months? What do you reckon? Um, well, I, I think we've got a good chance of making progress because, because of the consensus which has been drawn up around Davis. I mean, and, and I hope that's part of... You know, part of what Heathrow has got to do, it has got to build that consensus uh, amongst the parties. Uh, it, it is a tough decision, and if you're in London, and if you're directly affected by it, I mean, you know, one of the things that is sort of, we have constituency members of Parliament, they are there to represent their constituencies. If you look at other European countries, they don't have the same sort of political makeup, they have more regional or PR lists where it's not so accountable. So I, I, I never got too annoyed with colleagues who were very vehemently opposed yeah. to the plans that I uh, put forward as uh, Transport Secretary. In fact, some of those colleagues who really fought hard for their own local constituencies actually saw their majorities go up uh, as opposed to actually losing their seats. They kept telling me they'd lose their seats because of this project. Actually, it d- didn't turn out that way. Uh, so, um, so who? Uh, I, I was. Uh, I, I remember one of the last discussions I had as a junior minister in the Department of Transport was talking about aviation capacity in the southeast. And one of the first things I did when I became Secretary of State for Transport, actually, the work you, you'd like to say you did as Secretary of State for Transport. I think it happened two days after I arrived. So you can imagine the work had been done before I arrived there. This idea that you arrive and do things in two days, as a, even as a Secretary of State. Uh, you need to be the Prime Minister or the Chancellor to do those kind of things. But, uh, you know, we did set up the Davis Commission. It did report. It did go into detail. It did it after a lot of consultation. So I hope that's going to happen. All right. I, I have to say, look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a politician, but I'm not part of the Davis consensus. I mean, it, it, what you've described is, you know, in a way textbook, uh, setting up a commission to... Um, you know, kind of take the political sting out of some of this, you know, getting someone to look at it. On the, on the other hand, I put to you, I mean, that the commission and, um, and, and, and its uh, chair um, tolerated very high rates of return, proposed rates of return to the operators. And what, what is proposed is an airport very, very expensive for people, you know, and that's going to fall on. There's still a lot of work being done it. on that. Yeah. And the, the, work, the, the, the cost, I think the cost, I think the, the plans will be altered and changed as a result mm. of some of the, uh, the pressures which are coming on as mm. far as that is concerned. So I was asked the question as to whether we're going to actually make progress on mm. it. I think the, 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 the truth is, and, and you can carry on putting it, look, the easiest thing for politicians is to 
put that decision off because it's too complicated, because yeah. it's too big. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, let's not do it. It's, uh, we've only got four and a half years before the next election. We can, we can muddle on through mm -hmm. till four and a half years on that. So, uh, and that's why I think things like the National Infrastructure Commission, um, things like Davis, it isn't just a matter of putting it off and trying to avoid answering the question. It is trying to build that consensus that yeah. is needed. And it oh. is worth remembering, I mean, you know, the more you see of economic and infrastructure development in other parts of the world, you know, you look at what is happening in India, you look at what's happening in China, you look at what's happening in the Middle East, look at what's happening in many parts even of the continent. And then you come back into Heathrow and it's pretty dismal, it really is. It's like almost as bad as the contrast between our wonderful King's Cross St Pancras and the Gare du Nord. Yes, mm. absolutely. But what you're describing is, is you know, something where the politics is so difficult mm -hmm. to get it done mm -hmm. that actually the cost is almost secondary. And so we end up with very expensive electricity uh, uh, airports compared to China or India. Let's, let's go, uh, 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 not going to settle this one now. Uh, let's go over by the door. Uh, good morning, uh, Peter Campbell from Westmont Communications. Um, Patricia, you talked a lot about private finance and, and, mm. and private sector expertise. I wonder though what your thoughts currently with um, the chances of that actually being a long-term policy going forward given the public perception around PFI, around PPP, Carillion and given the Labour Party's um, views on private sector involvement and obviously I'd like to hear Patrick's uh, views, views on that as well. Peter, thank well, you very much. Indeed. And look, public-private partnerships are not exactly fashionable at the moment. And, you know, sadly, um, a number of things went wrong. I mean, you know, a lot of the early PFI contracts in particular were written in such a way that when the private partners refinanced them at lower interest rates and made huge profits, the public sector couldn't that back. Now that was changed for the next wave of PFIs, but that's one of the reasons why the fabulous hospital, the Norfolk and Norwich, which you know I have quite a lot to do with now, nonetheless remains very expensive. And you know its upkeep, its its continuing payments, are a you know significant demand on the one and a half billion pounds that is spent every year on the NHS in Norfolk and Waveney. So there are, you know, there are legitimate criticisms there of the way that those PFI hospitals were, many of them were constructed and contracted for, and that has soured, you know, attitudes towards um, partnerships with the private sector. And then there have been some absolutely disgraceful cases of abuse and or incompetence, um, you know, I mean, including actually one with the Olympics with the security guards. So, you know, several companies performed really shoddily on those contracts. And I'm glad to hear Bronwyn say that actually the public sector is much cannier now about entering into those partnerships. So there are bad as well as good, and I think Looking at the political debate, I think it would be a great pity if Labour were, as it seems to be doing, swing, if it were to swing back into a very old Labour attitude of public good, 
private bad. You know, I remember, and Patrick will remember, when the political debate was simply private good, public bad, private good, public bad. You know, and it was a very um, sterile debate, really, between those two positions. And I think we then got to a much more mature and accurate understanding that there is good and bad in both the public and the private sector, and for that matter in the NGO and not-for-profit sector as well. And you need to try and bring together the best of all of those sectors in the national interest on whatever you are doing. I think just very briefly as well, it comes back to a point that was made earlier on about the the growing importance, I think, of devolution and the way the cities yes. start to work yeah. and the relationships that uh, can then be developed and getting that, fi getting that financial understanding right, as Patricia mm. has just said. Mm. I, I think one of the, I suppose, if I reflect over a very long period, one of the things that I'm most interested in and really pleased to see is how much closer now universities are working with businesses and industries yes. right across yeah. the piece. And I think that has been a tremendous benefit both for local companies uh, and also for the universities as well. And, and that, I think, is something which is really positive. You know, I look at the, the Midlands and my part of the Midlands in particular, uh, you know, and I look at the companies like Rolls-Royce, Toyota, Bombardier, JCB, you know, a real engineering excellence. And if you go further into the, the West Midlands, the whole sort of the revival of the motor industry um, and, and the way in which that is now also working, though, with the university sector is really, really encouraging uh, for, yeah. for the United Kingdom. For the United Kingdom PLC, um, I, I think, is uh, very, very much a, a way forward. So not dead. Um, just um, behind the arm, yeah, yeah, next to you there. Yep. And then I'll, I'll come here. Yep. Thank you. Daniel Kremen from King's College London. It's good to hear you plugging the university sector there in terms of its, I think, definite increased willingness to collaborate with industry and to try and de develop cross-sector partnerships. I, my question to both of you is about place. Um, you know, it's quite an important theme in the industrial strategy. And I was just wondering about um, your experience when you were in government about what you were alluding to earlier, groups of council leaders coming together or groups of MPs, sometimes across the parties. How, to what extent when you're a minister and you're having to, to judge really you know, limited budgets and huge demands on it, how do you manage that, the politics of infrastructure investment where there's, you know, legitimately good bids from multiple regions or sub-regions for a, quite a small pot of money sometimes. Mm. How do you balance that and, um, mm. you know, make sense of it all? <laughs> well, it was, in a way, when I was Transport Secretary, it was really quite, um, quite easy because um, I was sort of uh, blessed, he says, with a slight smile of irony, of having a chance for the Exchequer whenever he wanted to go to a various region, wanted to announce another infrastructure project. <laughs> and I took the view that if the Chancellor had announced them, the Treasury would go bloody pay for them. Uh, and it was uh, quite useful. Unfortunately, the Treasury didn't take that kind of view. Uh, but it did lead to some very interesting conversations as to what the Chancellor had promised and the Treasury had got to pay for. Uh, and I, I think the... Uh, I well remember sort of doing a reception... There was a reception done for transport leaders at Number 10 Downing Street 
And I did say that the only problem with being the Secretary of State for Transport uh, in, the, uh, in the present government was that there were always two people in front of me. And it was a great pleasure to ask the Prime Minister to address the, uh, the uh, reception <laughs> at that particular point. But actually both the David Cameron and George Osborne got infrastructure spending. Yeah. I mean, they really did. I mean, you know, David Cameron he addressed a railway conference in Leeds. I don't think any other prime, I can't recall of a prime minister going to a railway conference. He got more coverage because somebody ran into him and we had leading the lead station and there was a great review of his security than actually the speech that he made about railways. Uh, so that, you know, getting that kind of political support from the top of the government was really very important indeed. I would just connect that with um, also some of the things, Patrick, you were saying, which I strongly agree with about local devolution and building these local partnerships in in health policy terms you know the uh, all the focus these days around the world is on place-based integration so that you actually bring together NHS social care uh, social services councils social services providers the voluntary sector all the key partners within a particular geography and that is what Simon Stevens and Jeremy Hunt are doing with the Sustainability and Transformation Partnerships, trips off the tongue. Um, it's what we're doing in Norfolk and Waveney. And that gives you a framework in which you can have, it's not always easy, but you can have a better dialogue across parties and, and beyond parties. And I think that's really helpful and important. The other thing I would just say, perhaps coming back to the point about private finance, there's been, and, and George Osborne was very involved in this, but there's been a real attempt to get more pension fund investment mm -hmm. yeah. into long-term infrastructure. Absolutely. Not always particularly successful, um, although the Canadian pension yeah. fund, of course, came in on HS1. Yes, and there are other examples like that. I think there is real potential for taking a lot of these smaller schemes, A11, yes. A11, uh, A11 dueling and lots of other ones like them, each of which individually is too small for a pension fund to do due diligence on or take on the risk, but you could group them together and actually make a very attractive yes, investment proposition with a bit of risk sharing and so on. And I think that would be worth looking at, given that there will always be constraints on how much public sector investment you can do. And you could do that over a much longer period, as you exactly. talked about the 50-year period. Exactly. I think that, that's a quite important thing. And yeah, it's it, exactly it, what it, pension it, funds are desperate yes, for exactly. these days, particularly with interest and, rates. And I think are. the other thing that, that has changed as well with pension funds is that they are, at one stage they would only look at buying the end product after it had been developed. And I think there has been a movement in their thinking to actually get involved in the actual uh, sort take of... Take a little bit of a take construction a, take, risk. Take a bit of a construction risk. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to squeeze in two last questions. Uh, here, there, and I'm going to... If we've got time... Um, you got one? You've got two. No, you've got one. Um, um, my okay, uh, Renee Lavanchie from nowhere in particular. It strikes me that uh, you can have lots of uh, clever studies, options, analyses, and papers from think tanks like this one, but it won't stop a politician from making a decision which is underinformed or 
driven by political expediency. A few very quick examples, all lane, motorway running, uh, insufficient evidence. Um, Hinkley point C. Yep, yep. <laughs> Hinkley point C really delivery model, um, uh, driven by fixation with off-balance sheet treatment and uh, and preferring hydrogen trains over electric ones. Very expensive, no effect on diesel emissions. My question is: Does the panel think that um, bad decision making is a fact of life? Thank you. Next one. Hi, uh, Tom Fitzpatrick. I'm the editor of Construction News. Um, I just wondered if it's probably a follow-on to that, but I just wondered whether uh, the panelists thought there was a future for some kind of dedicated infrastructure ministry or a dedicated infrastructure minister. It's um, something that's been approached in different different countries around the world to, to varying degrees of success. But also, if, if Patrick could comment, around, around national policy statements, around budget time, we often hear that this is something that's being considered within government. And I wondered if he, he could comment on whether or not this is something that's genuinely being considered by government in, in recent years. Thank you very much. And I'll squeeze in a third one. Thank you. Thank you. One. Uh, forgive me. I'm slightly nervous. Chris Foster about a government initiative and a rather long experience in transport, much too, much too long in some ways, uh, and involved in this sort of thing from the Victoria Line going right the way back to one of the great successes through the Channel Tunnel where I did it for Margaret Thatcher and uh, a few others I could mention. But they, what, what I, let me just ask this question to try and draw it together in a way and concentrate on transport because that's not been most of what I've done in that, this sort of kind of fashion. But it's, it is, I think, the fact, others will know the exact statistics nowadays, that over many, many years, much more money has been spent every year on investment in rail, in modernization in rail, than in the whole of roads. The attempt to change it a little mm -hmm. recently in spite of the fact that the cost-benefit analysis return on road projects is far, far higher almost entirely than on rail. Those rail projects are pretty disastrous. You know, we have to think of these various odd ideas of things which may or may not be achieved, improvements of productivity which virtually never happen. How do you think that's, why, why is it still the case that you have that slant in the way in which you take decisions. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, bad decisions, fact of life, infrastructure minister, <laughs> rail versus road. Pretty briefly, I'll tell you, I don't have to ask, answer them all. Um, yeah. Look, in our personal lives, do we always make brilliant decisions? No, of course we don't. And I think, you know, all you can do is go on trying to improve the process, the transparency, the level of debate, and you know, as Patrick particularly has exemplified, there have been some very good decisions, very well executed, as well as some not so good decisions or some good ones that were poorly executed. Infrastructure ministry, um, I'd never really thought about, but actually listening to this discussion, I think it's not a bad idea. And the shareholder executive, which I was involved in setting up to manage government owned businesses and manage them much more professionally has been a great success. This is something on a much a very different scale but I think it's worth looking at. And um, roads versus rail, I've never really completely understood that myself and I certainly think looking at the state of our roads, the potholes and what has happened to them over this winter that we have just experienced 
if we don't start putting money into serious money into road maintenance, we are going to have some very serious accidents and uh, damages claims um, hitting local authorities for years to come. A number of points there. I think if I can just do the rail versus roads, one of the things I was very conscious of when I arrived, first arrived at the Department of Transport, was how we had a planning period for the railways, but we didn't do the same thing for roads. We've now got that. We've got a roads investment strategy, which uh, and Highways England and the changes that were brought about uh, to Highways England, I think, were very important. And we are moving to a much more longer-term sort of uh, roads. But roads did become politically unattractive. Um, politically controversial uh, and that's why I think there was a bit of a, a, a fair block on them for quite some some years but I think we've moved beyond that now. As far as the all running uh, for, for running uh, motorways I, I, I beg to differ I think they've made a tremendous difference. I think the smart motorways are uh, making good use of yes it's it's a terrible problem while they're being built and while they're being developed um, but uh, if you think of what they're actually doing for capacity terms, I think they are making a very, very big beneficial difference. And I uh, travel, uh, not too often I do I drive to London these days, but when I do now, and you see where that is, uh, the smart motorways have been implemented, I think they are a much, much more effective way of uh, running the motorway network. Of course, the Department of Transport is only responsible for, with, through Highways England for 2% of the roads. It has, the, the vast amount of uh, carriage as far as, uh, I've looked these figures up yesterday, I wrote them down somewhere, uh, a third of all traffic and two-thirds of uh, HGVs go on uh, sort of uh, the motorway network and the trunk road network across the country. Uh, the rest is local authorities, and this comes back, I think, to what local authorities may or may not want to do. Um, are there occasionally bad decisions? Well, of course there are occasionally bad decisions. Um, but overall, I, I can't think of many of uh, the big infrastructure projects which have not been uh, people saying afterwards, why didn't you do this a long time ago? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. in the, in the run-up to them, incredibly controversial. Yeah. Thank you all. Let me just say a few mm. things finally and on the infrastructure ministry. It's an abstract word. Uh, as I said uh, earlier, you don't find the public talking about it, but they really care. Mm. Uh, I remember a formative experience of going around with Jack Straw at his height of international fame, if I can put it that way, as Foreign Secretary uh, with all kinds of foreign journalists and foreign ministers and an uh, elderly lady from his constituency following him <laughs> with a picture of a pothole. I also wondered during this, while I very much want to dig into the finance questions and so on, we've been talking at the end of what has been a kind of 10-year consensus about using more uh, money uh, to go into infrastructure in an era of very low interest rates, and yet they are ticking up. I wonder whether we will. Uh, the tone of the debate will be slightly different in a few years. In terms of forthcoming work in this area from the Institute, we will be kicking off um, a new uh, extensive project on outsourcing and public versus private and uh, the financing thereof uh, this summer and will very much want contributions from everyone. But we have to stop there. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you to Tim Banfield and his colleagues from APM. And of course, thank you to our panelists. Thank you. <laughs>